The second most popular cheese in the United States is cheddar. The first is mozzarella for an obvious reason. And there's not much you can do better with cheddar than turn it into a grilled cheese sandwich, especially next to a bowl of tomato soup. From KVBI in Homer, Alaska, my name is Jeff Lockwood, and it's time to check the pantry. of cheddar in the southwest of England has been around a long time. The oldest complete human skeleton ever found in Britain, Cheddar Man, is estimated to be around 9,000 years old with archaeological evidence of human habitation going back at least three or 4,000 years before that. The Romans and the Saxons had extensive settlements in the area, and the name Cheddar first appears in the famous Doomsday Book of 1086. The source of Cheddar's international renown is the nearby Cheddar Gorge, a deep limestone gouge that, like the area surrounding many legendary cheese-making centers, is filled with caves. At least as far back as the 12th century, these caves have been used for the highest purpose a cave can have, aging cheese. The qualities of Cheddar, a firm though not hard texture, a characteristic crumble, a nutty flavor that ranges from mild to very intense, and in more aged varieties, plenty of calcium lactate crystals studded throughout, derive in part from a specific step called cheddaring. After rennet is added to the cheese to curdle it, it's gently cooked and the first and largest quantity of whey is drained off. The cheese is cut into large slabs, which are then stacked on top of each other, and then at 15-minute intervals flipped over and shuffled into a new stack over and over for about an hour and a half. This process drains off more of the whey, allows the cheese to acidify to its desired pH, and reorients the protein strands to get a start on the crumbly texture that will result several months down the line. The ideal structure of the cheese's interior at this point is almost universally described by cheesemakers and cheese scientists alike as the texture of a cooked chicken breast. After cheddaring, the slabs are cut into small curds and salted, at which point you have two options. You can take the curds themselves, squeaking against your teeth, and drop them into a fryer or pile them on top of french fries and gravy. Or you can scoop them into molds, put a lid on them, and put them under a cheese press, then pack them away for however long you need. For a young cheddar, perhaps two months, on up to beyond two years, for extra sharp, extra crumbly, extra flavorful results. England has never shared its cross-channel neighbor's obsession with ensuring that places that give their name and terroir to particular foods retain exclusivity rights in making them. Roquefort's air is scented by producers of Roquefort, and Camembert oozes with Camembert makers, but Cheddar today has only one producer of Cheddar. There is, or rather was, an EU-protected designation of origin for Cheddar produced in the four counties surrounding Cheddar, West Country Farmhouse Cheddar, but the staggering majority of cheese bearing the name is from elsewhere. Well, if we are going to make a great grilled cheese, we're not going to start with the cheese. We are going to start with the bread. Making a great sandwich takes great bread. So let's make some. We're not going to make some extravagant sourdough, some rustic ciabatta. We're not going to try to make a perfect baguette. We are going to make soft, square, delicious sandwich bread. A square loaf, technically known in the U.S., it typically goes by the name Pullman loaf. It's sort of derived from, the French version is called pan -a -mi. 
It essentially just means a very soft white bread that's used for toast or that's used for sandwiches or that makes the best French toast. Well, actually, brioche makes the most extravagant French toast, but this makes excellent French toast too. It is the basic white sandwich loaf. That's what we're after here. And it's called the Pullman loaf in the U.S. That's kind of how we know them. Um, Pullman loaf specifically means the, the square kind. And there's always this story, and, you know, I've read a lot of bread cookbooks in my day, and every single one of them, whenever they talk about the Pullman loaf, says it has something to do with Pullman cars on trains. And the theory that's always put forth is that the square loaves stack neater and took up less space on the train. And nobody ever has a, a particular source for this. In fact, they all say pretty much, like, we don't know exactly why these are called Pullman loaves, but... We think it's because they save space on a train, which it sounds pretty plausible. And for years, I just sort of assumed that, yeah, of course, that must be it. Then I started thinking about it. And I'm like, you know, I guess technically the bread loaves would sort of stack better. But pretty much any bakery is going to have a lot more pans kicking around than they are loaves. And Pullman pans really don't stack very well, at least compared to regular loaf pans. Like 10 Pullman pans is going to take up like a lot more space than 10 regular loaf pans. So it doesn't seem like you're really saving any space unless you also store the bread inside the pan with the cover on, which I guess you could, but maybe that's what they did. I really don't know. So my new theory, which seems to have just as much credibility as anybody else's, I, I think it might be called a Pullman, a Pullman loaf because it sort of looks like a like a train car. You know, it's long. It doesn't have the big poofy top like uh, typically a loaf baked in the open baked in an open loaf pan would. It's very compact. It's very sleek. But maybe I'm wrong. One day we'll take a deep dive into the actual history of the Pullman loaf because as much as I've seen this story repeated, I've, <laughs> I have definitely found in some cases that somebody made up a story in 1929. In, a, in influential cookbooks, and all of a sudden, every other cookbook that ever comes down the pipe after that cookbook pronounces the same story as gospel. So that's entirely possible that that's what happened with the Pullman loaf, but I don't know that for sure. Uh, I'm just, the space-saving thing is really kind of starting to bug me because I, I just started imagining, like, Pullman, Pullman pans don't, don't nest, you know? They're square. They're straight-sided pans. Typically, like, the one that I have is uh, four inches by four inches, and they have a cover and they're straight. They don't, they don't nest like a regular loaf pan. You know, you can fit six loaf pans in the same space as you would be able to fit one Pullman pan. We'll keep our eyes open for evidence one way or the other, but I am coming out as a skeptic of this particular Pullman theory. Anyway, enough about Pullman loaves. We are gonna be making a Pullman loaf. And uh, if you're not familiar with the Pullman loaf, a Pullman loaf is a regular loaf. Like I said, the pans are straight-sided. They're square in cross-section, uh, typically four by four by four. You can get them where they're two by two by two as well to get the little sort of uh, the little cocktail loaf size. And they have a cover, so they don't rise past the cover. The cover also inhibits crust forming, so you don't get a really dark crust. You get a very soft crust. Um, the, the bread actually steams inside the Pullman pan. Pullman loaf pans are actually very handy for uh, a lot of rye breads because of that, because rye bread... One day we'll do a show on rye bread. I love rye bread. It's very complex, and for years I had no idea why my rye bread would always come out terrible, and then I figured it out because I was making it entirely wrong, and in fact... Most people that aren't of Central European origin make their rye bread wrong. One day we'll talk about rye bread. That day is not today, though, because I don't have a rye sourdough starter going, so I haven't made any rye bread for a while. But today we're talking about Pullman bread, the polar opposite of rye bread. I've got my stand mixer all ready to go here, and this is a pretty simple recipe. This is not very complicated. There's no poolish, there's no starter, there's no biga. We don't pre-ferment, we don't do anything other than make a very simple loaf of white bread that will go from uh, mixing to coming out of the oven in really about four hours tops. Got my mixing bowl on the stand, and the first thing I've added here, just because it happened to be handy, was 45 grams of milk powder, you know, powdered milk. I like to use buttermilk powder a lot if I have it in here. It's a really, it's a really excellent addition to this uh, recipe. Just sub buttermilk powder for regular milk powder. You can, uh, if you don't have milk powder, you can 
just sub in some milk for part of the water that'll come later. Milk powder tends to be used in a lot of bread recipes that were developed in professional bakeries because they almost always use milk powder because it doesn't go bad. It just sits on the, you know, they don't have to worry about keeping, keeping milk around. This particular Pullman loaf comes from a legendary bread book, Jeffrey Hamelman's Bread. If you are a bread nerd, you will love this book. It is fantastic. There, there's a lot of stuff in there for home bakers, but it's written from the perspective of a professional baker. All the recipes he's he's got scaled for like a professional uh, situation, and then he also scales it down for home. Once you learn baker's math, it's really easy to scale recipes. I think we've talked about baker's math on the show before, but we'll talk about it again because it's extremely useful to know about. Because if you know if you understand baker's math, you can scale any bread recipe that's expressed in it to the, whatever size you want. Um, you can take a you can take a recipe that was that was designed for a hundred pounds of bread and turn it into something that's designed to make one loaf. So the only thing to really understand about baker's math is that the flour, the total weight of the flour is always expressed as 100%. And everything else in the recipe is expressed as a percentage of that flour weight. So if you have 100 grams of flour total, it doesn't matter what the, the makeup of the flour is, if it's 50% wheat flour and 50% white flour, or 20% rye, 30% wheat, 50% white, it doesn't matter. It just matters that all of the flour in the recipe is 100%. The next big thing that, you, that you're gonna know is the percentage of water. And the water is expressed as a percentage of the total weight of flour. So for a bread recipe that is, say, a 66% water bread recipe, so that means that for every 100 grams of flour, you will add 66 grams of water. If your salt percentage is usually somewhere around 1.5%. So that means that for every 100 grams of flour that you add, you will add 1.5 grams of salt. And it's like that on down the line. If you know your percentages, if you know that a particular bread recipe is say 100% flour, 72% water, 1.8% salt, 0.6% yeast or whatever, you can just by doing a little bit of math, if you wanna end up with like, six pounds of bread or six or three kilos of bread or whatever, you can very easily uh, just do some quick calculations and understand exactly how much water you're gonna need, exactly how much flour you're gonna need, exactly how much salt you're gonna need, and exactly how much yeast you're gonna need. And then whatever other, whatever other ingredients are involved. So understanding Baker's math makes things, makes understanding bread recipes really, really easy and really quick. You know, you'll, you'll very rapidly sort of start to understand the way that different kinds of breads look when they're expressed in different percentages. It is really, really useful to spend a little bit of time learning how to do this, especially if you get serious and start, you know, start buying a lot of uh, the real heavy duty bread baker books because everybody uses this. This is standard, you know, anywhere you go in the world, if you talk to a baker, they're going to express themselves and they're going to write their recipes down as in this baker's math. It's also very useful for sausage. So that little disquisition uh, finished. Let's go ahead and start making this. So this is uh, 45 grams of uh, milk powder, which is 5%. So let's add our flour right now. And this particular one, this recipe will yield one, I have a 13 inch Pullman pan. So this will yield one 13 inch long loaf of Pullman bread. And this also happens to be almost exactly the amount of dough that I can reasonably make in my mixer. So 907 grams of bread flour. There we go. 907 grams of bread flour. This particular recipe contains a little bit of sugar. Because again, this is a soft, white, slightly sweet sandwich bread. So we're adding 2.5% sugar, or 23 grams of sugar. Uh, 45 grams of softened butter. Because again, soft white bread. This helps soften the crumb. And let's see, I'll add the water last and get my salt and my yeast in. So 17 grams of salt calls for seven, which was eight, that was eight, 1.8% salt, which is really common in a lot of bread recipes. And I'm gonna add 2.5% yeast, which is 
23 grams of yeast. This is quite a bit of yeast. If you make a lot of uh, pre-fermented doughs, um, you will definitely be like, that's a lot of yeast, because it is uh, quite a bit of yeast. But because this is a fairly short ferment, uh, it's only gonna ferment for about three and a half hours total. You wanna, you wanna give that yeast, a, you want a nice big charge of it. We're not cultivating this yeast here. We're just asking it to come out gangbusters right off the bat and make this bread rise. So we're, we're charging it with a big, a big shot of yeast. For something that is going to ferment longer, you know, you might go half that or even less. There's a lot of recipes where you start out by making something like a poolish or a biga, and you might start out with, you know, a quarter of that amount of yeast that you culture and allow to grow over a period of, you know, 12 to 24 hours. So that then you get this heavy duty, awesome yeast culture, and then you add that to the last bit of flour, and that causes the boom, the final fermentation. But for a recipe like this, that is not what we're after. We are just after a plain old, simple rise. And the next thing is 544 grams of water. This is a 60% recipe, 60%. So we can kind of imagine that this will be on the denser side. Uh, the bubbles are not gonna be very large. This isn't gonna be a very loose dough. It's gonna be fairly firm textured. It's not gonna be something like, like a bagel, which bagels are typically in the mid to low 50s, uh, if I remember my bagel percentage correctly. And it's gonna be denser even than something like a baguette. Like baguettes are typically 66%. 64, 66, I think it's 66. So this will be a pretty dense, dense loaf. It's not gonna have big holes, which we don't want in sandwich bread. And it's gonna have a firm texture, but it's gonna be soft because of all, because of the sugar, because of the milk powder, and because of the butter. That's gonna help, all help to soften the crumb. So here we go. You guys are going to be laughing at me because of, uh, my mixer needs a rebuild. I need to strip off, take the top off, replace all the gears. It's pretty sad shape. It's got a short in it, so sometimes it randomly comes on. It's not that hard to do, I just need to do it. Rebuilding your mixer is always the thing that you, you put it off and put it off and until it finally just one of the gears strips and it breaks and then you have to do it which always happens right when you're in the middle of some project that you really need the mixer for. So I'm gonna throw, I'm gonna go ahead and just say, by the next season of Check the Pantry, I need to have this mixer rebuilt. And let's try it now. Oh, there's some nice strength here now. Yeah, we're mostly, got a nice strong window pane on the dough. Easy to stretch it out pretty far. Takes a while for it to start tearing. It's hard to overbeat when you're on when you're <laughs> when you're doing it by hand, which I did for a very long time. But uh, it's relatively easy to to do in a stand mixer. It's a little harder in a KitchenAid because they're not that they're not like crazy strong, but it's still doable. So if anything, in general, when you're making bread in a stand mixer, it's better to slightly undermix it than to overmix it. Because the gluten will continue to develop as it, uh, as it sits in the bowl and ferments. Hence the famous no-knead breads, which I think we've made on the show before. So this is ready for bulk fermentation. It's just going to sit in this bowl for the next two hours in a, warm, in a fairly warm spot. And uh, double. I will fold it in about an hour, lift it up, fold it in on itself couple of times and that helps to arrange the gluten in a nice structure but for the most part now the hard part's done now we wait a couple hours later and my pullman loaf is lovely got a lovely bulk bulk fermentation happening it is more than doubled in volume and so Give it just a little few minutes of kneading here. Kind of bust out a little bit of the air. Not even a few minutes, maybe 30 seconds or so. Start to shape it. Basically, 
shape it not too differently from a baguette. Just kind of roll it out, fold the outside in a little so it stretches, roll it a little more, make a seam from the bottom, make the seam from the top, roll it over, roll it out a little bit more. And we're just gonna keep doing this until we get 13 inches, which we are pretty much there. I'm gonna fold the ends over so I don't have a big seam on each end. Make sure my seam is nice and tight. Grab a little bit of butter and just to butter the inside of the pan a little bit. Plop that guy in there. Press him down into the bottom. So now I'm gonna have a nice tight top and that is filling this thing about a little, right about halfway, pretty much almost exactly halfway. So I'm gonna let this rise until it gets to be within an inch or so of the top. I'm also, I'm gonna let it rise with the cover on. <laughs> you gotta keep an eye on it a little bit here. Um, depending on all sorts of things, this could take as little as an hour. It could take an hour and a half. Uh, sometimes it might even take just 45 minutes or something. It kind of depends on how the yeast is going. And once this is done, I'm going to bake this in a 425 degree oven for right around 40 to 45 minutes, usually till it's done. So my Pullman loaf is basically at this point done. Nothing, nothing else exciting to talk about here. The next step will be making the tomato soup. All right, let's experiment a little, why don't we? So I'm just gonna say right at the get-go that I don't know how this is gonna come out. Um, this could be terrible and I will just have to go <laughs> to a plan B or this could be really delicious and uh, I could be very happy with the results. I don't know what's gonna happen. Since we're making a grilled cheese sandwich in a very, a very fine, very high quality version of a grilled cheese sandwich, what is the classic accompaniment to a grilled cheese sandwich, but tomato soup. Specifically, we all know the first thing you think of when you think of a grilled cheese sandwich and tomato soup is Campbell's, the red can. Many a lunch of Campbell's and a grilled cheese sandwich in my day. But this being a cooking show, we have to be a real pain. And even though we could just very easily grab some decent quality sandwich bread and some decent quality cheddar cheese, maybe even Velveeta, which I happen to like a lot for uh, grilled cheese sandwiches, at least as a component. I love that texture. But we'll talk about Velveeta on the burger episode because Velveeta and other American cheeses are the, the great burger cheese. And I could just get a can of Campbell's tomato condensed soup, pour it in a pan with a can full of water and call it good and be, have a pretty pretty, pretty satisfying meal. You know, I mean, let's not fool ourselves. That's, that's not bad. Stack it up against the common meals of history, kind of stuff that most people had a reasonable shot of eating and it's pretty good. So what I'm going to do here is I'm going to make some tomato soup. And when I first started thinking about doing this, you know, of course you kind of, Oh, well, I'm going to, how am I going to make this tomato soup? I got to make it. So it's extravagant and, you know, chefy and whatever, but I don't really, I kept thinking about it, you know, and at first I was like, oh, I'll make some kind of a tomato bisque using cream. And tomato bisque is great, but then I started thinking about it in the context of the meal. I've already got a grilled cheese sandwich. Why do I need more dairy products? Why do I need more richness? Why do I need more heaviness? I don't. I threw out the, the, the concept of, of bisque, you know, and something sort of thick and sort of little, a little bit rich. So then I'm thinking, you know, so lighter a lighter, sort of fresher, brighter soup, which is kind of appealing because the weather's terrible and it's the middle of March and or the end of March. I'm kind of over the, the heavy winter stuff, you know? I sort of want to, like, mentally turn myself a little bit. <laughs> it, even if spring's not here, you know, I want to at least get my mind into that mode. So I want something a little brighter. So, you know, and then I thought, well, maybe I'll make some sort of tomato soup with a bunch of vegetables and herbs and stuff like that. That's very, you know, blah, blah, exciting and whatever. And then I started thinking about it and I was like, you know, I really want something that's very, very simple here. I don't want, I want something that's almost elemental, you know, almost like the same way that the Campbell's tomato soup is elemental. Like it's, it's such a distinct and singular and unified flavor. It's light. It's a little sweet for my taste these days and a little bit kind of syrupy and I don't love it, but I can taste it in my mind and I go, that's pretty good. You know, that's, that's not bad. I want something maybe a little perkier, maybe a little brighter, maybe a little more interesting to go with this sandwich that I'm putting all this work into making the bread and well, I didn't 
<laughs> I'm not putting any work into the cheese. I'm just going to slice it. So I started thinking about it. And I was like, well, you know, maybe I'll, I'll try to dial it back. Maybe I won't do it so herby. And I thought, well, I put any herbs in it at all. You know, if I put basil in it, then it's immediately connotates like Italian, you know, tomato, basil. Yes, they are delicious, but they're also inextricably linked with a particular food style and cuisine. So then I thought, you know, stuff that I typically make, you know, like I, I pair tomatoes with, I like a lot with thyme or some of the more floral herbs, you know, lavender, stuff like that. Uh, eh, that's, that's bringing in a lot of stuff that I don't really necessarily want. What I want is a really vibrant, strong tomato flavor that's very bright and very delicious, acidic with a little undertone of sweetness. So how do I get that? Well, I'll just <laughs> buy a decent can of tomatoes because, you know, it's Alaska. So in the middle of March, the only good tomatoes that you're going to have are going to be canned tomatoes. And in the middle of summer, <laughs> the only really good tomatoes you're going to have are also usually going to be canned tomatoes. Greenhouse tomatoes are another that's, an, that's, a, that's a topic for another day. I have controversial opinions on them. There are some really good ones, and I grew some last year. For the first time ever, I was satisfied with a greenhouse tomato. But anyway, uh, moving on to the topic at hand, which is tomato soup in March. Uh, canned tomatoes are where you're going to go. And in general, even though they're outrageously expensive, particularly if the tomato is going to be the star of the program, I always have non-San Marzano's around because for like weeknight spaghetti sauce, that's awesome. I'm totally happy with regular canned tomatoes. But when you really want the tomato to taste really good and be as good as you can be, you got to go for the real deal. Pomodoro San Marzano from Italy, DOP to protected stuff, the real deal. They're good. They're awesome. I mean, they're totally worth it. Let's not beat around the bush here. This is high quality, delicious canned tomatoes. These are the cream of the canned tomato crop. And then what else do I do? Well, I don't want it to be just dump some tomatoes in a can. You know, because that's not really what you're looking for. You need at least a little bit of complexity and something else going on to kind of perk some things up. So, you know, I think, oh, I could add a bunch of spices and garlic and onions and that, would, and that in, in other contexts I would, but then we're, we're, we're getting much closer to, again, something that's more like a tomato sauce um, and something where there are competing flavors, where I really want the tomatoes to be the star here. That is what I'm after. I want an intense tomato flavor. And there happens to be one vegetable that a lot of people hate, especially on its own, but which is very useful for bringing out and pointing up uh, other flavors, and that is celery. It actually has chemical compounds that when combined with other compounds in different foods, it will accentuate certain flavor molecules, particularly the glutamates, which are most associated with the umami taste um, that is very common in things like meat and soy sauce uh, and other fermented soy products and which tomatoes contain quite a bit of. So celery is going to be my second edition of choice here. And in this case, instead of, I thought about adding them straight and then I thought about sweating them a little bit, but then I decided, you know, I'm gonna I'm gonna roast them for a little while, and I'm gonna slow roast them. I'm not gonna like try to get them real hot and crispy. I just want to slow roast the celery for a little while, dry them out a little bit, soften them up, concentrate the flavor some, and then add it into this soup, which I'm which I've now decided is gonna be as minimal as I can possibly make it. So I've thrown the celery into the oven at 325, and I'm gonna let that go for a little while. And I'm going to go ahead and simmer my tomatoes a little bit, just to soften them up a little more than the canning process already has. And in this case, I'm going to add, and I have a choice here. Again, I could add chicken stock, I could add wine, I could add any number of other liquids. But in this case, I'm just gonna add a little bit of water, about a half a can, just to help sort of thin out my soup a little bit. So now at this point, I have three ingredients. I have the tomatoes, I have celery, and I have a little bit of water, if you wanna count water as an ingredient. So I'm gonna let these tomatoes simmer just a little bit, just to soften them up, because I'm gonna wanna puree them. And I think we've talked about it on the show before, but if you really want your, your tomatoes your canned tomatoes specifically, uh, to lose their structure, you need to not buy diced. Um, diced tomatoes actually have an additive that firms up the cell walls and maintains that diced structure, 
which is useful for a lot of dishes, but for things that you do want your, your tomatoes to be pureed for, obviously you don't want that. At this point, as, as I'm sort of building this dish in my mind and I'm trying to imagine what this is gonna be like, I'm like, well, I could add some herbs and yeah, I could. The main secondary deal, the celery, I'm a little bit worried at this point, like, you know, if I, if I added a little bit of like Worcestershire sauce and Tabasco, then suddenly I'd be, you know, have a Bloody Mary on my hands and I don't really want Bloody Mary soup. So I do want to kind of lead it a little bit away from that. Like I'm sort of worried that if I add just the celery, the roasted celery here, that I might get something that's a little too vegetal and a little too like a Bloody Mary. So then I started thinking, okay, well, what, what can I add to it? You know, just to kind of point up the real savoriness of this and the and the intensity, like that's what I'm looking for. I, I want to lead a little bit away from the sweet and I want to push it into the meaty. I want it to be very satisfying, very mouth filling. So I started chewing on that and I was like, well, I could, you know, well, I, the first thing I thought was, oh, I could add some Worcestershire. And then I was like, immediately I was like, that'll turn it into a Bloody Mary. So then I started thinking along the lines of, I was like, well, maybe I could add miso, but that that's such a distinctive flavor on its own that, that I don't want to push it into that territory where now it's like miso tomato soup. But it did lead me to thinking about other ways of sort of upping umami, while also, in this case, increasing the texture of the soup and improving the texture of the soup. And what I've settled on and what we're going to try here is a little bit of kombu. I have a bag of kombu that I got from Weatherly at Glacier Point Seafoods. I'm going to add that. I'm pretty much there, really, with the, with the canned tomatoes. They fell right apart. So I'm just going to roast my celery for maybe 20 minutes or so. I just want to drive off some of the moisture. I just want to soften it up. I'm going to puree all that with a stick blender, and then I'm going to strain it out. And finally, at the end, I'm going to simmer some kombu in here to give it that sort of both the kind of slippery, uh, delicious sort of full texture that only seaweed can give to that can give to a liquid. Uh, and it'll also give it kind of a salty and briny, delicious, fresh oceanic flavor. That's the goal. Anyway, we might get there and I taste it and I'm like, this is disgusting. And then I just open up a can of Campbell's and call it good. You gotta experiment in the kitchen sometimes. And one thing I will also say is that I do have a pile of the leaves of this celery. And I'm gonna chop those very finely and I'm gonna use those as garnish at the very end. Um, I almost always get rid of my celery leaves before I do anything with them because they're very intense. They have a, a slightly peculiar, a little more celery than celery flavor, if that makes sense to you. They're just really intense. So if you use too many leaves, I find that it's easy to overpower the celery flavor and it takes the celery out of its kind of support role. But in this case, I think that it would be useful at the very end to give a little sprinkle of celery leaves to give it a real brightness and a real like, boom, here's something fresh and delicious that I think will go really nice with the grilled cheese sandwich. So I'm gonna let this all sit, turn the tomatoes off. They don't need to cook down too much. I don't wanna lose too much water. I don't wanna concentrate them too much and get too much cooked tomato flavor. So I'm gonna let the celery finish roasting and then we'll be back to finish making this particular soup. My celery has lost a little bit of its water. It's softened up a little bit, but it hasn't dried out and become leathery. And that was maybe two full stalks worth of celery here. Um, I didn't cut them, I didn't chop them up or anything. Uh, to I broke them apart. There's a slight amount of browning, not very much. So we're not gonna get an overwhelming browned flavor. I'm just gonna go ahead and mince them real quick. Drop them right into the tomatoes. Go ahead and heat this up a little. Just let them simmer together for a little bit to let the celery soften a little further. Yeah, so it's still a real strong tomato flavor, but now it's acquired a sort of a, a depth, a little, a little bit of 3D aroma from the from the celery support. Go ahead and grab our stick blender. You know, I'm, I had one of these for years and it finally, the motor finally died. And then I went for a while without getting one. I just never got around to it. And because <laughs> after a while of it being dead, I'd kind of forgotten that it was extremely handy. 
then I got one again. And I was like, man, I forgot how awesome these things are. <laughs> it's still pretty chunky. It's a pretty thick puree. So I am going to strain it because right now it's, it's a little chunkier than I really want it to be. Alright, so let's go ahead and strain this. Push it through the strainer. And this is purely one of those refinement steps that we talk about periodically. From a strict <laughs> standpoint of nutrition, uh, this is completely unnecessary. In fact, we're, we're leaving behind a certain amount of bulk that would, in fact, help us feel fuller. But what we're doing is we're clarifying the flavor a little bit. That doesn't mean that, that this pulp is flavorless. Obviously, I'm, uh, I'm, I can taste it. And there's plenty of quite lovely tomato flavor that's going to be happening in here. But we're keeping just the really volatile aromatics, getting rid of a certain amount of stuff that's just sort of muddying up the waters. And it's still quite thick, of course. I mean, there's, there's still a lot of uh, decent-sized tomato pulp left in there because it's a strainer, you know. We didn't go through, like, some super tiny cheesecloth or anything like that. But now it is definitely the thickness of tomato soup. And let's go ahead and give it a little, little taste here. Mm. It's good. I would say I've probably used a little too much celery in there. I, I think it would have been better with mm, maybe half the amount of celery. Three quarters to half the amount of celery would have been a little nicer. But it's got a very good flavor. Um, I'm very happy with it. But it is a little, it's a little one-dimensional. You know, it's not, it's, it's strong tomato and a fairly, a pretty strong hit of celery. It isn't at this point something that I would, that I would think is, oh, that is a fabulous tomato soup. It's, it's pretty good, um, but it's a little, a little one-dimensional. So hopefully the addition of this kombu will take it to the next step. Typically the way that kombu is steeped is you bring the water up to the boil, add the kombu, turn the water off, just let it steep in the liquid for a little bit. And how much am I gonna use? Decent amount. It's okay, so we're at the simmer. And drop it in. Oh yeah, already the flavor is becoming quite intense. Let's see where we're at here. Mmm. Oh, it's good. It's good. It's very it's it's quite good. I would say that my my initial feelings about this are that as a first step in an interesting soup. I'm extremely excited about it. Um, I think that there are ways to go before this would be considered done. Um, the the seaweed, the, the briny uh, oceanic flavors are a little too powerful right now. They're too prominent. When I start, when I when I take the first bite, that's the first thing you get is a big shot of seaweed. But once it resolves after that, and you start to get the tomatoes, then it's quite delicious. I would say if I was going to do this again. I would double the amount of tomatoes involved. I would probably have the amount of celery, maybe three quarters of celery. And I think with I think with more tomatoes, this would be ideal. And actually, I, I bet that that amount of kelp would be the perfect amount of kelp if I had twice as many tomatoes. Because right now, it's good, it's unbalanced is the problem. How do I turn up the good and turn down the suck? That's the task set before us with this particular tomato soup, which I'm really, so far, very in intrigued with. I mean, it's literally three ingredients plus some water and a little salt. And honestly, do I think it's better than Campbell's right now? I don't, but I think it's got the potential to far surpass it. All right, so next thing we need to do is to make the star of the show, which is a grilled cheese sandwich. And we are going to use nothing more than cheese and bread here, and butter, of course. There are all sorts of dumb arguments that you can engage yourself in if you would like to on various internet websites as to the particularities of grilled cheeses versus melts. Purists arguing that if something has only cheese, then it is a grilled cheese. If you add any other ingredient, then it becomes a melt. And non-purists arguing that the grilled cheese itself can accept other ingredients. And that is the sort of an argument that some people find very amusing to engage in and that I really don't care about. 
So that's the last you're going to hear of it from me. But today we are making just a regular grilled cheese sandwich, and I'm not even doing anything particularly fancy. We're not using any exciting cheeses. There's nothing that is super aged, well, although this, this particular extra sharp cheddar is aged much longer than usual, 15 months, which is a long, a fair amount of time for a cheddar and laughably short for many other cheeses. When I was younger, there was a place in Dallas called Cafe Brazil uh, when I was in high school. They had a grilled cheese sandwich in it. It had five different cheeses. There was cheddar, I think, I think there was Asiago, there was feta, um, I want to say maybe Swiss, and I can't remember what the other one was. doesn't matter. It had five different cheeses, and I thought it was like the most amazing thing ever. Because when I was younger, I thought that the more stuff you had, the better. Like, that was always better in the food context. And now that I'm old and cranky, I no longer believe that. I actually am using two different cheeses here. I'm using regular cheddar, medium cheddar, and I've also got a little bit of extra sharp cheddar. Regular old Tillamook, which those of us on the west coast know and love. Or if you're east of the Rocky Mountains, you have no idea what Tillamook is. Tillamook is awesome. We love Tillamook. And I'm going to slice off my Pullman loaf here, which came out beautiful. I've already had a couple of slices of toast. I'm going to slice about a half inch thick. One of the nice things about, about baking Pullman loaves yourself is that you can make your slices as thick or as thin as you would like. I am not in favor of, in general, particularly for sandwiches, I don't like massive chunks of bread. Nothing worse for me than trying to eat a sandwich and it's just this huge, huge pile of bread. Not that interested in that. So we're just going to have normal sized bread because we are normal people eating a normal lunch. All right, get my pan hot. So I just have this big pile of some chunks, slices of medium cheddar and slices of extra sharp cheddar, and they're all sort of jumbled up and mixed together. They're all yellow too. I didn't get the white kind just because I kind of wanted it to actually all look the same in the uh, inside the sandwich. A lot of people will shred their cheese for grilled cheeses, which I have also done. I usually just don't do it, A, because I'm lazy, and that's really the only reason. <laughs> I don't know that there's really any advantage to it. I mean, generally they say it melts quicker, is, is what I've heard, but I don't know. Does it? I do know that you wind up with a big pile of shredded cheese that then all the air gets expelled of it, and so you wind up with a lot less, uh, it's a lot thinner and a lot less like an intimidating wall of cheese, which I kind of feel like a grilled cheese should be sort of an intimidating wall of cheese. And the other thing I don't like, I do remember this, is that one of the reasons I don't like it is because when you go to flip it, um, especially when you first put it in the pan, a lot of cheese tends to fall out around the sides. And there's some people I'm sure that argue that that's great uh, because then you get the crispy cheese, which is, you know, sure, why not? But I am mostly on team slice the cheese. So I'm gonna get my pan nice and hot, but then I'm gonna turn it down because the only thing you can really do, in my experience, the only thing you can really do to mess up a grilled cheese is to try to cook it too hot because then your bread, as we all know, and has happened to all of us before, your bread winds up burning and your cheese is still unmelted. So I have buttered the top slice, an even coat of butter, very important, all the way to the edges, also very important. And I always butter the one slice, flip the sandwich, and then butter the other piece of bread in the pan. No doubt there is someone who is scientifically determined, to their own satisfaction anyway, that one way or the other, that buttering the grilled cheese is superior. I have personally generally found that buttering the top, flipping it, and then flipping it into the pan, and then buttering the what was previously the bottom, is perfectly adequate for most of my purposes. One of the advantages of grilled cheese is that it's really fast and really easy to make. So you, you're often very hungry when you're making one. Like, I'm actually really hungry right now. I don't know, perhaps, perhaps some of my stomach growls that were captured by the microphone will end up in the finished piece here. Um, but I'm definitely pretty hungry. And when you're pretty hungry, you kind of go, oh, you know, whatever, I'll just, you know, cook it a little faster, cook it a little hotter. And it's great, and you're, you're still like, and then you sit down, and then you get to the middle where there's like some unmelted cheese. And every single time I go, God, if I was only just a little bit more patient. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be patient here. Even though I want to get through this uh, this recording, we are we are after the ideal grilled cheese here. 
There are also people who who will use mayonnaise on the outside of their bread. And uh, superficially, it really makes, I mean, well, not superficially. I mean, it does make sense. Mayonnaise is just eggs and oil. At least it's at least in the same ballpark as something like, you know, French toast, which is eggs and milk. Um, I have tried it because people who love it wax very extravagant over how delicious it is. Um, I personally was not impressed enough to want it more than the couple of times I took a crack at it. So if you would prefer mayonnaise, though, if you like mayonnaise more, then knock yourself out. However, I am personally not a mayonnaise butterer. The other thing, which I do a lot just because I happen to have the, I happen to have it sitting around sometimes, or I've just made some bacon is I will, uh, you know, cook the, cook the bread in the bacon fat. And honestly, the only reason I do it at this point is because the bacon fat is there and I'm just too lazy to butter bread, which is pretty lazy. But if you don't have any soft butter around, then that kicks things over a little bit. And I, I honestly, I don't, I don't love sandwiches cooked in bacon fat, even though I eat them more than I really should. I don't like them as much. I think butter is kind of the ideal coating for the outside of a sandwich. It's got the, it's got the sweetness. It's got the milk solids that when they brown, they give it that really gorgeous sort of caramel flavor. It's not overpowering. It tends not to soak as deeply into the bread as something like, like bacon fat or lard or any of those kind of things. Those, those always tend to have like kind of a greasy feel when you're done cooking them. Butter never really has that greasy feel. It feels like butter is the best fat for like unifying with the bread so that it's crispy and dry and delicious, but it doesn't, it doesn't have that. And it's not as heavy tasting. I always feel after I eat a, after I eat a sandwich that I've fried in like bacon fat, I'm always like, man, I really feel like kind of unpleasantly full at the end of it in a way that I typically don't with a buttered sandwich. And bacon fat just has a really dominant flavor. You know, the, the, the beautiful thing about butter is that it's got its own lovely flavor, but it doesn't dominate the way that bacon can. It doesn't overpower things. And this, you know, this is a, this is a simple sandwich that's just supposed to be very elementally delicious. And the cheddar is part of that. For ham, something like ham, if you're making a ham sandwich, cheddar is good, but, but Gruyere and the various Swiss type cheeses, those are better. For that but cheddar has that that really just straightforward like this is cheese flavor that's fantastic you know and my every time i've ever put even though i love blue cheese every time i've ever put it into a grilled cheese i've been really disappointed um the same thing with goat cheese the texture is all wrong with goat cheese or feta which you know was part of that that sort of early wow this grilled cheese is amazing thing and I think about think back on those sandwiches and it was like the feta was always in the middle and it was just like big unmelted chunks of feta, <laughs> which is fine you know in a salad or in a in a gyro but in the middle of a grilled cheese it's it's not really what I want I want to be running into it, it draws attention to itself in a way that I don't think is appropriate for a sandwich as elemental as the grilled cheese. So I can I can see now I just get the barest little hint of brown on the outside of the butter. My cheese is starting to sweat. It's starting to melt a little bit. It's going to take a little while though. I mean it's cheese on bread. That's what else you know, particularly for those of us who are culturally derived from Europe, this is like a really elemental <laughs> piece of food. Melted cheese on bread. People have been doing this for, you know, thousands of years. I mean, sure, the bread's a little more refined and the cheese is, is a little fancier, or at least a little more developed. And when you do use thick cheese, this is when you really got to take your time. If you're just get using like one slice of American cheese or something, then it doesn't take that long for that to melt. So if you're in a hurry, don't use too much cheese. But is there anything more pleasant than biting into a big hunk of melted cheese? I mean, there is, but that's that's up there. And one thing I do like, you know, I mentioned that I, I do like, you know, American style, super melty cheeses on things like cheeseburgers and stuff. But on, on a grilled cheese, the nice thing about about a cheddar which doesn't technically melt as well as something like a Velveeta 
the way that it sort of strings together and hangs together uh, is very, very pleasurable. And it doesn't, I like that it doesn't ooze out the way that um, the various sodium citrate or actually in commercial cheese, it's usually sodium triphosphate. That they do technically, uh, you know, from a strict definitional standpoint, they do melt a lot better. They remain uniform in texture. But that sort of stringiness and bits of greasiness and bits of sort of firmness that always remains in a cheese like cheddar in a grilled cheese sandwich, I find is very satisfactory, you know, when you bite it and it sort of pulls away as opposed to what can happen, you know, particularly if you use a bunch of stacks of like Velveeta in your grilled cheese sandwich and you take a bite of it and it just like oozes all over the place. It's not as satisfying in something like this, which is very uniform in texture as it is in something like why I love that style of cheese and why occasionally I will go to the trouble of making, you know, a really super high flavor homemade sodium citrate kind of American cheese for a burger is because, you know, burgers got all those little nooks and crannies. And when you put the cheese on top of it, it starts to melt and it dribbles into all the little places. And that is really interesting when you, when you bite into it, because you get like the cheese and the burger are like a unity you know, they're the same object. But in something like this, like the bread is is already homogenous. There aren't little cracks and crevices for things to go. So you want the textural interest really comes from the cheese. And so if you don't have a melting, you know, a cheese that's fully homogenized and oozing, then you get a little bit more of an interesting texture and a little bit interesting mouthfeel. I am also the kind of person who thinks way too much about the way that various pieces of food are interacting with the various surfaces in my mouth. So if you're not one of those people, then you're probably better off, honestly. <laughs> All right, the cheese is nicely starting to soften and lose some of its volume. Some of it is starting to drip down the sides of the bread. The bread itself is now a very light golden brown. I'm really getting hungry, you know, at this point. My temptation is to turn up the, the heat, get the bread crispy, rush off to the table, and then what's going to happen? I'm going to sit there, and the first couple bites are going to be like, yes, it's fantastic, and then you hit that cold cheese in the middle, and it's just so disappointing. It's like a real-life version of the, of the marshmallow test, you know, where you say you can have your marshmallow now, but if you wait 10 minutes, I give you two. This is like a psychological experiment. They should do a psychological experiment where they just tell people, hey, cook this grilled cheese. I'm sure there's extensive psychological implications for how you cook your grilled cheese. And I'm sure they probably don't cast me in a good light because I tend to rush mine. And I'm, I'm really, I'm making a point of trying to get, to lay back into the meditative qualities of the grilled cheese. Because even though it's such a simple thing, and even though it, it really is the paradigmatic, like, I'm just hungry now, I need to eat something now. There, well, first, there's a there's a ton of work that's already happened with the grilled cheese because somebody had to make the bread. You know, it's most of the time it's not going to be you or me that's making the bread, but somebody had to make the bread. And if it's not you or me making the bread, then there's a whole logistical chain getting that bread into the pan. So most of the work has already been done for you. In this case, I didn't make this cheddar cheese. I I know the process of how cheddar cheese is made, but I've never made it. So that even though this is like this elementally simple dish, there is an enormous amount of complex cultural and social constructions that are bringing it to this place where I can sit here and think, oh man, I don't want to wait another five minutes to eat this, this dish. Like, I mean, how, how many, how many months has this thing been in the making? You know, how much, how much flour, where'd that flour come from? This flour is probably from last year. And then they milled the, milled the wheat down into flour, you know, and this is a long process. And here I am at the very end of it. And I'm thinking, oh man, this is, this is taking me so long, but it's like, how long has it actually taken this grilled cheese to get to the point where I can complain about another five minutes? And that's the kind of thing that you think about when you are sitting here cooking on medium low, waiting on stuff to happen. I mean, there's thousands of years of development to even get to the point of being able to make this particular loaf of bread in this particular place. Like the whole history of the world is concentrated in the bread and the cheese and these tomatoes it's all in here, and here I am going, man, I'm just hungry. I don't want to wait another five minutes. Like, how much time have we already waited to get to this point? 
And the answer is thousands and thousands and thousands of years. And I don't want to wait another five minutes. It's going to be worth it, though, because now I see that now all the cheese is really starting to dribble down the sides. And it's starting, and now it looks like, it looks like a grilled cheese sandwich. And this delicious grilled cheese sandwich. In fact, did you hear that? That's, that's the cheese. It just managed to hit the pan. So we are going to get some nice little cheesy, crusty bits. I'm going to flip it over so we don't get too many of them. Oh, yeah. Oh, beaut. Oh, we're so, we're so close. And I'm so glad that I went into that little disquisition about the whole history of humanity condensed into this pan with a, with a piece of, two pieces of bread and some cheddar cheese because that's the kind of thing that made me wait the extra little bit. And now you can see, now you're like, yes, I'm there. I can do this. I can finish this. Like the whole last year and, you're, and you know, I've gotten my first dose and it's like, we're almost there, but we're not quite there. I just, now I, I've got the energy to push through to the finish line. And in fact, I'm so close now that I know that I can push it just a little bit at the end. So I'm going to crank the heat just a little bit to, I can crank it to medium just a little bit, just to speed up the process a tiny bit and to just get that, get that outside of the bread and the butter just a little bit more brown. Oh, the, all the cheese is just like oozing out now. But it's that slow, like lava-like ooze of, of cheddar, you know. It's not the, it's not the real drippy fastness of something like Velveeta, you know, or any of the other processed cheese foods. So I'm going to let that sit for just a minute. I'm going to let some of this cheese that's hit the pan bottom caramelize. Magnificent. I am so, so excited right now. And see, this is the reward. This is the reward for doing what you know needs to be done. Is it then, the, I have no regrets. I'm gonna go sit down, I'm gonna eat my lunch, and I'm not gonna have a single regret about the way that I made this, this thing. It is just gonna be awesome. So exciting when things work out, which, as we know from the last year, very often they do not. But this one did. The tomato soup needs a little bit of work, but it's got a lot of promise. And this grilled cheese is as good as a grilled cheese can get. 10,000 years of human history about to go on my plate. Check the Pantry is a production of KBBI AM 890 in Homer, Alaska. It's produced and hosted by Jeff Lockwood. The theme music is String Quartet Opus 10 Movement 2 by Claude Debussy, performed by Quator Ebane. This is the fourth episode of the winter 2021 season of Check the Pantry. Your financial donation as a listener makes this and other KBBI programs possible. Visit the KBBI public radio website at kbbi.org support to help produce programs like this.